Uh, let's pray and then we'll jump into the lesson. Lord God, um, we are so thankful that you are not like us, Lord. Uh, we are so thankful that you are above all things, that you are over all things, that you are over us. Um, God, we are so thankful that you don't change. Um, you are who you are um, unfailingly, faithfully. And God, um, we depend upon upon your character, Lord. We depend upon who you are. Um, and, and we do pray that you just be with us this morning, that you would give us energy and strength to, to look at your word, um, to look at old truths um, with attentiveness, Lord. Um, God, I, I pray that your word, your truth from your word, um, truth about who you are, would just sustain us. God, I, I pray that our hope would be found in you, that you would be glorified um, in us, in Christ's name, amen. So this morning, we are not going to do the memory passages or the run through the whole Bible, because I'm not Josh. <laughs> And we're all going to miss him together, and it's going to be great. <laughs> um, so we'll, we'll go ahead and jump straight into the, the names and the attributes of God. And this is going to be part one. Um, we're going to circle back to this two more times throughout the year um, to just talk about other attributes of God, other truth about who God is. Um, so right up, right up front, when I say attribute, what I mean is something that God says is true about himself. Something that God says is true about himself. Um, there has been so much ink spilled ab about the nature, the character, the existence of, of God. Um, and we're going to focus specifically on what God says is true about himself um, and not jump too far from, from passages. Um, why should we study the attributes of God? I, I have four reasons for you guys on that, that first page. Um, the first, salvation is tied to knowing and believing in God. Romans 10 is, is a really familiar passage. Let me just read a couple verses. Verses 13 and 14 say, For whoever calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? Um, this passage actually starts out with a quote from Joel 2. Um, and in Joel 2, God's judgment is imminent. It is coming. And even in the shadow of that imminent threat of judgment, Yahweh calls uh, Yahweh saves, and the verse that's the part of the verse that's quoted: "Whoever calls on Him will be saved." Salvation is tied to calling on Him. Calling on Him is tied to believing in Him, and believing in Him is called is tied to hearing of Him. Everyone who needs to be saved, and that's everybody, needs to know Him. Um, second, eternal life is tied to knowing God the Father and Jesus. Uh, we see that in John seventeen three, 
This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus, the Christ, whom you have sent. So salvation is tied to knowing and believing in God. Eternal life is tied to knowing God the Father and Jesus. Eternal life is tied to knowing personally the only true God, not just knowing facts about him, but knowing him, um, being familiar, close to him. Um, The third point there, our ability to endure in faithfulness is tied to knowing him. Uh, There are countless passages that we could have gone to to look at that. Um, And I, I wanted to just put... Psalm 103 in front of you. Listen to these repeated reminders at the beginning and the end of Psalm 103. Psalm 103 says, Bless Yahweh, O my soul, and and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless Yahweh, O my soul. Forget none of his benefits. Then the, the chapter ends with, Bless Yahweh, you his angels. Bless Yahweh, all you his hosts. Bless Yahweh, all you works of his. Bless Yahweh, O oh my soul. Um, our souls need repeated reminders. Um, again and again, they need to be commanded to do something. Um, they need direction to think rightly about and respond rightly to Yahweh. Um, this, this command, bless Yahweh, O oh my soul, is by position, <laughs> it reminds us that it needs to be repeated. It's, on, it's sandwiching, it's bookending the chapter. This whole chapter is about this command, blessing Yahweh. It's this this command itself is given in a form that means it needs to be repeated. It's iter- an iterative command. Bless him and continue blessing him. Oh, my soul. And, and it's repeated. Bless Yahweh, bless Yahweh, bless Yahweh, bless Yahweh. So by position, by repetition, and even by the form of the word, um, this is just in front of us. We need to be repeatedly reminded We need to be commanded over and over and over again to respond to God rightly. Um, And what what is it that aids us towards this response? What what is this obedience to this command tied to? Uh, It's his benefits, verses 3 to 19. Over and over again, it's who he is and what he has done. Knowing who God is, knowing what he has done, is actually what fuels our our responding rightly to him and glorifying him by blessing him. We need repeated reminders. Um, And that's actually what God, one of the things God uses to to help us be faithful to him. Um, Lastly, just open up really quick to Exodus 33. This is a passage that's sandwiched in between 
two passages that we know really, really well. Um, Moses was on the mountain for 40 days, 40 nights, hearing directly from God, and while he was on the mountain, Israel rebels and makes the golden calf. Um, Look at verse 5 just to see the state of things between Yahweh God and Israel. So Yahweh said to Moses, Say to the sons of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. Should I go up in your midst for one moment? I would consume you. So now, put off your ornaments from you that I may know what I shall do with you. But then verses 7 to 11 give this contrast. Yahweh's relationship with Moses is different from his relationship with Israel at this this time. Um, Look down at, at verse 11. Thus, in this way, Yahweh used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. Then Yah- then Moses would return to the camp. So, God had favor for Moses. He would actually speak to him face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. Um, this, that kind of introduces this back and forth dialogue between Yahweh and Moses. Um, God is talking about his favor for Moses and Moses is pleading for for God to have favor with Israel to not abandon them, to to go with them. Um, Look at verse 13. So now, I pray you, if, if I have found favor in your sight, Moses says, let me know your ways so that I may know you, so that I may find favor in your sight. See also that this nation is your people. To find favor in your sight, Yahweh, Moses says, I need to know you. And to know you, I need to know your ways. Um, down in verse 17, God actually gives Moses the promise that he's been asking for. Yahweh said to Moses, I will do this thing of of which you have spoken. For you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. And I want you to hear this this back and forth response right here from from Moses and Yahweh. Um, Moses responds to that that favor from God by saying show me your glory show me your glory God's response I will myself will make all of my goodness pass before you the request for glory God's glory needs to be seen God says I will make my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim the name of Yahweh before you And I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. And I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. When we get down to verse 22, God clarifies. I will make my goodness, I'll make my name while my glory is passing by. He says in verse 22, God ties his glory to his goodness, to his name, to his glory. God ties his glory to his name and his attributes. Um, Something just to think about. 
sorry. If, if Moses, who was face to face with God, um, who God spoke to face to face, like a man would to his friend, was not content with the knowledge of God that he had, um, thought, I need to know you, I need to know your ways, I should long to know God more. Um, if God is glorified in being known, if he's glorified in revealing these, these truths about him and his people knowing him, I, sh- I should desire to know him more. Um, even, even if these things are, are known by us and they are familiar, we should desire to know God more. Uh, let's, let's go ahead and turn the page and jump into some names or titles of God. The first, the first name you have at the top of your list there is Yahweh. We see this in our Bibles over and over again as capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Lord. Um, it's, it occurs 6,800 times in the Old Testament, this personal name, this special name. Um, it, it's actually the most common name in Scripture. Um, Yahweh you, you guys know, have heard, is tied to the word, I am. Um, just like we see in Exodus 3, 14, he says, tell the people, I, I am has sent you. I am who I am in, in that, that passage. Y- Yahweh itself, the word Yahweh, is actually in the causative form of the word I am. Um, what, what that means is, he, he spells out, I am. <laughs> he, he simply is. He exists. And, but this causative form means that he causes everything else to be. Yahweh is the one who causes everything, anything to be. Um, when, I, when I hear the, the name Yahweh, the, the phrase that has been told to me that, that I repeat, like, in my head whenever I hear that name is Yahweh is the self-existent covenant-keeping God of Israel. Yahweh is self-existent and that's tied to the etymology, how the word is put together, what the word is. Um, he reveals himself by the name Yahweh, which, which is tied to I am. Um, he's also the covenant-keeping God of Israel and that's not tied to how the, the word itself is put together but how God uses this name in scripture. He ties his name over and over again to his relationship to his people. Um, he wanted them to, to know him by this name. And we see that from the very beginning of scripture in Genesis 1, 35 times in 34 verses, God Elohim, the, the, the more general name of God, is, is used as the subject of the sentence, 35 times. It's, Genesis 1 is all about God. God created the heavens and the earth in the beginning. God did this. He did that. He, he's the one that, that Genesis 1 is about. In Genesis 2, there, there's a, sh- a shift. There's a change. God focuses in on the sixth day of creation when he made Ad- Adam and Eve, when he made man and woman. And he retells that, that part of creation. And as he's speaking of his relationship to them and this special, uh, 
created people, <laughs> um, his name shifts. It's right from the beginning of Genesis 2, I think starting in verse 3 or 4. It's Yahweh is doing this. God, God has just chosen to reveal his, um, who he is <laughs> and how he is a covenant-keeping God um, with this special name. God is the, the self-existent, Yahweh is the self-existent, covenant-keeping God of Israel. Um, that, that name wasn't just given in, in the book of Exodus. Um, we see it on the pages of scripture. We see it in the, the mouths of God's people in Genesis. We see it in the names of some of God's people, even in the name Judah. Yah- Judah means Yahweh praises. Um, God's people have has known this name and used this name, and he had revealed himself to his people this way. Uh, the, the second name there, El, Elohim, Theos, God, that occurs 2,300 times referring to the true God in the Old Testament. And, and about the word theos, the Greek version, occurs 1,300 times in the New Testament. Um, this is God or deity more broadly, more generally. Um, it's used 2,300 times in the Old Testament of the true God, and it's also used a few hundred times to refer to little g-gods that, that aren't real gods. Um, when this word is used, just like in Genesis 1, um, it refers to God's power, his authority. Um, God created from nothing by the power of his word. Um, this name is used over and over again to, to talk about God's power, his authority. The, the third title you guys have there is Adonai, or Kurios, uh, which means Lord. So it, it happens 395 times in the Old Testament when it's talking about God, the Lord God. Um, a lot of times when you see this, this word in the Psalms, um, you'll see right next to it, in all caps, the word God, <laughs> because it's used kind of sandwiched right up next to the word Yahweh. Um, and when when Yahweh occurs on its own, it's all caps Lord. When Yahweh occurs with with this other word kurios that actually means Lord, then they switch in a lot of English translations to all caps God, um, referring to Yahweh. And then without all caps, the word Lord. Um, what's interesting with this this word is in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word Yahweh isn't, isn't um, just translated as Yahweh in Greek, but it's translated as kurios. Um, so in the, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, they use kurios as the translation for God's personal name, Yahweh. So when we see Lord um, in our English Bibles, they're actually following an old tradition. It's not something new that they came up with recently. Um, and what, what is so interesting about that is, is we turn the page to the book of Matthew. 
Um, and in the New Testament, this title is given to Jesus 261 times. Jesus is Lord. The, the last title there, Ab, Abba, Pater, um, just mean, means father. It, it occurs only about 10 times in the Old Testament to refer to God. Um, but it re- occurs 135 times in the New Testament. Um, why the difference? Why? There are a lot more pages in the Old Testament than there are in the New Testament. Um, why, why is there this word not there in the Old Testament as often? Um, Jesus, when he calls God the Father, doesn't have to explain who he's talking about. Uh, it it is a familiar title of God. Um, but the prevalence in the New Testament, I think, is because you have the Father, Son, and the Spirit, all active, all visible, um, all evident, working at the same time. You have God the Son talking about God the Father. When, when, I, when I think about these, these names, these titles, um, how God has described himself. It, it's just a reminder for me to, to revere God, to be reverent. Um, how has God spoken of himself? How does he want me to think about him, to speak of him? He's Lord. He is master. He's creator. He's father. He's God almighty. Um, just, just, remembering these titles, remembering how God speaks of himself should produce humility in us. Um, and, and it is how he has chosen to, to a way he's chosen to glorify himself in our minds. Uh, let's turn the page and we'll jump into a couple attributes. So again, attributes are things that God has communicated that are true of him. Uh, look down at the, the quote at the bottom of this first page on the holiness of God. I think this first quote is, is really helpful because no attribute is in competition with another attribute. Uh, it, it's true, you can't really talk about one attribute in isolation without talking about other true things about God. Um, but we should love everything that God has revealed about himself. Um, And we can't pit our favorite attribute against another attribute. Um, This quote, I think, does a good job of drawing that out. Charnock says, His justice is a holy justice. His wisdom is a set-apart wisdom. His arm is a holy arm. His truth or promise is a holy promise. His name, which signifies all his attributes in conjunction, is holy. That, that quote's from Pink's Attributes of God. So holiness means, most basically, um, set apart or separated. It means God is completely other. He is different. He is set apart. He is separated from every 
thing. Every one. It does have moral implications. Um, holiness is tied to purity, being set apart from sin. But holiness just basically means set apart, distinct. In Psalm 30, verse 4, um, which is a quote from Exodus 3.15, God's name is holy. Uh, God, through the psalmist David, says this. He says, Sing praise to Yahweh, you his godly ones. Give thanks to his holy name. God's name, Yahweh, is holy. Who God is, is holy. Give thanks to his holy name. As God's glory is tied to his name, his name is, is tied to holy. In Exodus 15, Moses singing says, Who is like you among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? God is set apart from everything, from, from everyone. John, in the book of Revelation, hears this psalm of Moses in Revelation 15. He hears it being sung in heaven. And those ones who know holiness really well in heaven sing, you alone are holy. It's one thing for you and I to think something is holy, but, but for the holy ones who have had all sin removed to say you alone are holy for, for majestic creatures to say you are holy God alone is holy and what does this attribute mean for us First uh, Peter 1 16 tells us that but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, be holy for I am holy. Um, God's holiness actually demands holiness in his people. God alone, God is, is separate he is set apart from everything. And he actually desires his people to be holy. Um, listen, listen to this quote from, from Pink's book again, quoting Charnock. He says, We are not bidden to be omnipotent or omniscient as God is, but we are to be holy and that in all manner of conversation. This is the prime way of honoring God. We don't, we do not so glorify God by elevated admirations or eloquent expressions or pompous services for him as when we aspire to conversing to him, to praying with unstained spirits and 
we live to him in living like him. This is the prime way of honoring God, not elevated thoughts, eloquent admirations, eloquent expressions, not pompous services of him. How do we honor him? By praying as, as we seek to be holy and living to him by living like him. God desires his people to be holy. Let's, let's turn the page and talk about the self-sufficiency of God. God is holy. He is set apart from everything. And he is self-sufficient. The first point here, God existed before anything. And he was perfectly God without anything else. We see that in, in Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You are God. God existed before anything, and he was perfectly God without anything. From everlasting, you are God. Exodus 3.14, um, God says that he is the I am. And then in John 8.58, Jesus, God the Son, says he is the I am. The only uncreated one who brought everything that is into being he simply, gloriously, was before anything. And creation actually didn't add anything to him. He, Jesus had glory with the Father before the creation of the earth. Um, Solomon knew this when, when he went to build, build the temple. 1 Kings 8.27 talks about that. God needs nothing. Isaiah 66, Yahweh told Isaiah, Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. Where is a house that you could build for me? Where is a place I could rest? My hand has made all these things. Thus, all these things came into being. God needs nothing. He needs nothing from this, this world, this creation that he has made, and he needs nothing from you and I. There, there's nothing that we can do that would add anything to who God is. He is self-sufficient. He always was. Listen to Isaiah 46 here. I'm going to start in verse 9. Isaiah 46, verse 9. Remember the former things long past, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me. Who am I? Declaring, verse 10, the end from the beginning, 
and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my counsel will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. The end, end of verse 11, truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have formed it. Surely I will do it. God isn't just set apart, but he is over all things. When we, when we say that God is self-sufficient, that doesn't mean that he's detached from his creation. He's over all things. He controls all things. You and I are not like God. We're needy. God needs nothing. He, he needs nothing from you, nothing from me. But he gives and he gives and he gives his grace. And we, sh we should tremble. We should trust him. We should fear him. We should honor him. Um, Jeremiah 18, 6 and Romans 9, 19 to 21 both give the same picture, the same word picture of God being the potter, his creation, man being the clay. God, God isn't just over creation. He is actually intimately over us, people. God doesn't just control things. He is so far above. And while we can't give anything to him, he does have authority over us as maker. Sorry. He, he does whatever he pleases with his creations. And you and I need to honor him. We need to exalt him and trust in him. Th this truth about God being self-sufficient, set apart, and still sovereign, still involved, um, should make us think whatever the Lord gives, anything that he gives that would bring him glory, um, that might squeeze us into the likeness of Jesus, is what we need to desire. God does not need me, but he's actually chosen to be glorified in me. He's actually chosen to be, to be glorified in, in me trusting him, in me honoring him with my days. What, whatever God gives, if it would lead to his glory, if it would lead to me being more like his son, I need to want that. I need to desire that. Let's turn the page and we'll talk about the immutability of God. The immutability of God. God is unchanging. Th this is this is a hard, complicated one. Um, I I think the quote there from Grudem at the bottom is is really helpful to kind of fence in what we mean when we say that God is unchanging. Um, God is unchanging in His being his perfections, his purposes, and his promises. Yet, God does act. He feels emotions. 
He acts and he feels differently in response to different situations. Who God is, what he has purposed, what he has promised, never changes. But saying that, that truth, which God says over and over again, does not mean that he is inactive. God is active. He's personal. He deals justly. God is unchanging, but, but he's involved with his creation. That's just what we, we see in scripture over and over again. Malachi 3 verse 6 says, God, it tells us that God's promises are actually upheld by this truth that he is unchanging. He tells Israel, I, Yahweh, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Israel sins. The, the thing that, that holds God, um, the thing that Israel has to rely upon is that God will keep his promises. Um, it's their only hope. Psalm 102, I'm going to turn to really quick. I'm going to start in, in verse 24, Psalm 102. The psalmist says, I say, O oh my God, do not take me away in the midst of my days. Your years are from generation to all generations. Of old you founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish, but you will remain. And all of them will wear out like a garment. Like clothing, you will change them and they will be changed. But you are the same. Your years will not come to an end. The children of your slaves will dwell securely and their seed will be established before you. Even the biggest, surest things that we see and count on around us are just temporary. Uh, they're small, they're fleeting when they're compared to the immovable, the unchangeable, the enduring, the steadfast, the faithful God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He always was, and he always will be faithful. Um, how, how should I apply this? I, I think it's really easy to apply truth about God's sovereignty. I know he's over all things, and so I can trust him. It's, it's really easy to, to think about truths like God's love. Oh, I love that one, and I can apply that easily to my heart. Um, how should I apply an attribute like this, the immutability of God? God does not change. Well, when I see weakness in me, I know I shouldn't try to find hope here, right? When I, in, when I see instability or I feel the limitations of, of this vessel, 
I know I should not try to find hope here. I should remember, God is not like me. He doesn't have the same weaknesses that I do. He doesn't have the same frailty that I do. He is unchanging. He always was, and he always will be who he is. In contrast to me, the good one, the father of lights, the giver of good things that we see in James 1.17, he never changes. And, and there's hope there. There's hope in God's promises because he does not change. He doesn't make promises that he won't keep because he's not like you and I. God never changes. Lastly, the, the last one we're going to look at this morning is the eternality of God. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, Even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God had no beginning. In Genesis 1, we see in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word. There is no beginning to God. In the beginning of all these things, he was already there. Isaiah 41, um, that should actually be verse 4, so you can write over verse 1 there. Isaiah 41, verse 4, God is there from the beginning, and he's there at the last. It says, calling forth the generations from the beginning. I, Yahweh, am the first, and with the last, I am he. I am he. He just is <laughs> from the beginning, from before the beginning <laughs> to the last. He is. This applies um, to God the Son also. We see in John 17, verse 5 and verse 24, Jesus was with the Father before the foundations of the earth. Jesus was glorified with the Father before the world was. He was, and he was glorious before anything else was. Turn to Revelation 1 for just a minute. So Revelation 1, verse 4, tells us that the one who is speaking from the one who is and who was and who is to come. And then jump down to verse 8. Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Um, the eternality of God doesn't mean, just mean that he's old. It doesn't just mean that he's been here forever. Um, but this is actually the God 
who we are all reckoned to. He was. That, that's true. That's all over the pages we just read. He was. And he is right now. And he is to come. God is eternal. And the future is in his hands in the same way that the past was in his hands. In the same way that this present day is in his hands. Judgment of sin is coming. Rescue from wrath has been purchased and it is coming. Look for hope and find it in him. How should we apply this truth, the eternality of God? Um, Something I've just been thinking about is now always feels big. There, there are r- really big, consequential things always in front of us. Um, if you don't feel that right now, it's coming. <laughs> They're always rushing at us. It is so helpful to know that the Eternal One, the Eternal One, who is and who is sovereign and who is good, and who has proven himself faithful has not changed. He was, he is, he is to come. Nothing is too big for him. Um, this moment, which, which feels big in the moment, it maybe even is really big, really consequential, is not too big for him, and it'll soon be passed. But he who was and is and is still to come is unchanging. It's not too big for him. Um, Knowing truth about God, knowing these truths, knowing any truths about God is just a a worthwhile thing to pursue. Um, Even if these truths are familiar and they're not new, um, we need to continue to pursue knowing him. Our faithfulness is tied to knowing who he is and what he's done. Th- there's some resources down there at the bottom. Um, a lot of the quotes from this were from Pink because they're just super, super helpful, succinct, easily quotable <laughs> little chunks. Um, that's one that I, I feel like even if you have read it in the past, it it is one that you could read every year and it wouldn't get old. Um, with any of those resources, the ones that I find most helpful are the ones that are most closely tied to scripture. Um, and that, that's what I love about Pink's book in particular is that there are just passages all over it. Like the most valuable thing about that, that little book are all the verses that are referenced. Um, and just going and looking up each of those verses, you could read, you could read the chapter in 10 minutes or you could spend two hours probably looking at each of those verses. Um, Either of those pursuits are, would be good. (laughs) Well spent time. Um, MacArthur and and Mayhew's biblical doctrine is a great bigger resource that has lots of things. And he has in, in the section on the attributes of God, really, really helpful, just lists that summarize different aspects of 
these these things that God say are true about himself. Yeah, whether we're we're learning on our own or we're learning together, um, pursuing these attributes of God to know him is just worthwhile. Let me pray and then we'll break and you can spend the rest of your time in small groups. Lord God, we are so thankful that you are not like us. Lord, as, as we do feel um, our own weakness, even if we're not feeling it at this moment, uh, we will. Um, even if we're feeling awake now after an hour, <laughs> um, Lord, w- we know that we are frail. Um, we know that, that we need you. Lord, please help us to remember truth about you um, when trials come. Lord, please help us to remember truth about you in the midst of joy, in the midst of um, good things that you give in this world. Help us to to not be enamored with those good things, um, but to be amazed at at you who give good things. Lord God, I, I, I pray that you would just be with us and that you would sanctify us, that you would glorify yourself as we pursue holiness, as we pursue faithfulness to you, Lord. I thank you just so much for the time that we get to open your word and, and see who you are. And Lord, please help us to love your words because we love you. We ask these things in, in your precious name. Amen.